Hey everyone, welcome to the Building Bridges, Breaking Barriers podcast, where we seek to span the gap and open the doors of understanding and loving those around us through diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Hi everyone, welcome to the Building Bridges, Breaking Barriers podcast. I am your host, Jonathan Rogers, and I have my friend Bryn Brody on the call with me. Hi, Bryn. Hi. Um, we have been, I've been friends with Brody, was, or Bryn, sorry, oh my goodness, uh, <laughs> Bryn for, what, about a year now? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and we've been connected online through uh, various uh, groups, through mainly, mainly Mormons Building Bridges, and I think other groups as well. Yeah, you have um, a couple that you introduced me to, which I've really appreciated, Um but I think Mormons building bridges is probably where we connect the most. I think it aligns most with what we both see as being important work out there. Yeah, it's been, it's been really awesome. Um, I really appreciate you, uh, Bryn, being on the podcast. Uh, I wanted to do a small introduction for you. Um, would you be willing to tell little, the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, where, where you live, a little bit about your family and your ambitions and hobbies? Yeah, of course. Um, So my name is Bryn Brody, and I live outside of Denver, Colorado. I have four kiddos. The oldest one is 21 and non-binary, and they have brought into our life their fiance, who is also non-binary, Sage. And that has just been such a blessing in our lives, just really a joy. And then I have an 18-year-old who is expecting to graduate in this crazy time of COVID. So the worst senior year ever, but also, she doesn't have to get dressed and wear pants to school. So that's a good thing. And then I've got <laughs> a 15-year-old. And, um, you know, she's uh, trying to figure out how to be a 10th grader in a world where you can't socialize the same way. The activities that you would normally do. At this time when she's supposed to be leaving home, she's stuck being at home. So that's been challenging, but I'm so impressed with how she's um, navigated that. And then my youngest kiddo, uh, he's 11. Um, currently, we're homeschooling because none of the options that school offered were going to work for us. And that is a new world, what, not one that I ever thought um, I would be a part of, the homeschooling world. So that's that's been a journey. That's <laughs> been a journey. Um, my background Absolutely. Is, <laughs> um, my background is English education, secondary ed. So I thought I knew what I was going to be doing when I came into this homeschooling thing. And then I uh, found out that my kiddo is resistant to absolutely everything I tell him he should be doing. Um, uh, and he usually wins the argument. So apparently I am also not the authoritarian, uh, strict kind of teacher that I had imagined <laughs> myself to be. Um, I'm currently getting a graduate certificate in um, social justice. My goal is to go back to school once school opens up again um, to get a master's degree in social justice work. So that is a little bit about me. Um, I'm really super old. So I I feel like I am everybody's mother. You are a mama dragon for sure. And it, 
I, I've really, I've, I've loved, you know, getting to know you, Bryn, and just listening to how you build bridges of understanding between different groups of people, uh, and sometimes fiercely, even, especially when we're protecting those that are on the margins. Um, and obviously, you, you know, anyone that's listening can tell you're just an incredible mother, um, and you're just juggling so much right now. And, you know, I don't think, I know it's obviously this time has been really hard for kids, but, you know, I, I definitely want to give you the credit of all the work that you're doing for your family and for others. And this has still got to be really hard for you, especially trying to go back to school and, and, you know, with everything else. So just, you're just doing really awesome. It's so, so great. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. I think everybody's, um, I think we're all just out of sorts right now, right? Nothing is the way anybody had pictured it. And so everybody's just trying to navigate this kind of new space that we're occupying together. And I'm grateful for online friends. I, you know, (laughs) technology is a problem. It has its issues, but oh my goodness, I can't even imagine going through the world that we're living right now without having connections with people like you or, you know, some of the other people um, I've come to know through social media. So that's been a lifesaver for me. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I, I can't imagine my life not having um, social media. It, it is really a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways, but um, so many of my close friends, um, you and others, I, I just wouldn't be able to connect with without it. So absolutely. And especially during this time. Yeah. Um, so thank you for telling a little bit about yourself and, and your family. And um, obviously there's, there's just a lot there obviously to unpack in terms of just how it, it all blends into your passion for social justice work um, and, and helping those on the margins. Um, but let's, if it's okay, let's start kind of from, sort of the beginning, uh, as far back as you feel like you would like to go um, with kind of where your journey started. And, and what I mean by that is just when, when life started going in a direction that you, you really started to see the realities of the world and how that kind of influenced you and, and changed your worldview. Um, I'll pass over to you on that. Sure. Um, I, that's a big ask. And probably, uh, I should just start with a trigger warning. I didn't have a super easy um, childhood. I had loving, wonderful support surrounding me. Um, But also, I think like most people, I had um, things that weren't awesome in my childhood. And that all impacted who I am today. Um, My mom was divorced when I was really young. Uh, She lived with bipolar. Um, it was bipolar that was misdiagnosed until I was roughly 17, I think, um, as depression. So it was untreated bipolar. Um, she was in and out of hospitals for suicide attempts, uh, certainly did the best with what she had. Um, and, and given the medications that were available at the time, things have gotten much better now, but it still is something that, um, I live with, right? Um, I have nothing Mm -hmm. like that. I have no um, signs of bipolar or anything, but some of how I grew up um, influenced how I see the world today, right? Like everybody does. Mm -hmm. Um, It also, my mom remarried when I was nine years old and um, I am super grateful for my siblings who came out of that union. Uh, My sisters are my best friends. Um, I'm going to get weepy all 
<laughs> just thinking about how That's much. Okay. Yeah. They, um, you know, just the people who um, understand you and the parts of me that I prefer not to show uh, to the world in general, they've lived those parts with me. Um, just such uh, bedrock for me. Um, I, having said that, I wish that union had not happened. I wish that I could have my siblings a different way because my stepfather is um, probably the most awful human being I have ever personally met. Um, mm. And that's something that um, uh, isn't, it's something we don't talk about a lot, I think, in our society. It's something that, um, especially in the LDS community, um, the appearance of being perfect is often more important, right, than, than actually working toward perfection. Um, mm -hmm. And so that kind of veneer is something that we lived with as a family um, when days were really um, a, horrible. Um, you know, mom in and out of hospitals, uh, my stepfather was abusive, all of that kind of stuff that was not talked about. Um, we couldn't address mm -hmm. it at church, which should have been the space where we could address that kind of stuff. Um, couldn't address yeah, it. The face was put up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, maybe for good reason, because it is a space that is full of people with different experiences. Um, maybe some judgment there, that kind of stuff. But also I always dreamed of a sanctuary, right? A place where you can go. I'm um, kind of like these online communities that we've made where you could go and just say, Hey, here are all the things about me and I need help navigating these things. And mm -hmm. I, we didn't have that back then. So. Yeah. Vulnerability, uh, a safe space and vulnerability and, and putting kind of who you really are authentically out there is not something that has been done as much until very recently, at least from what I've under, understood, especially, you know, you go back several generations and it just, that was not the case at all. That was the taboo. Right. Um, and so I, I'm sorry you didn't have that outlet, that safe space to be able to kind of get that out there for that support. Thanks. I mean, I think I, as we grow, we try to do better and we try to learn more things, right? And hopefully as a society, we're doing the same thing. I think we know now more than we knew 20 years ago about how to create those safe spaces for people. Um, so I think it's overall probably getting better. Um, but I don't know, like society as a whole, right? There's some things that are kind of concerning. Right. So <laughs> absolutely. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. Um, but that's sort of what brought me to the to the place where I am now. How do we create those safe spaces for people? How do we give people permission to not be perfect? How do we say to people, on the other hand, the way you are is exactly perfect, right? You don't have mm -hmm. to fit into this box of what it means to be an LDS woman or what it means to be a strong LDS man, right? That however you are, that's enough. That's, that's good. Um, and there's a place for you in whatever place we are. 
Um, so if we're at church, I need you next to me with all of the things about you that aren't um, that picture perfect Mormon ideal, right? Um, if and hope for the same in return, right? You know, and yeah. that 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 full acceptance, no matter who they are, um, and not even that, but it, not just even in church, but I think you know, you and I have talked about just just in spaces in general, whether it's you know at education or employment or wherever. It's almost, it, it should be nearly the same. I mean, obviously there's support groups have with specific purposes, but I should be able to sit next to my coworker and, 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 and invite their whole selves into the work that we're doing together right? and not feel like they have to hide any aspect of themselves um, out of fear that it'll affect their job or will or affect their, sta- their standing in the church or it'll affect, you know, whatever that situation is. Um, and like we, we totally need to start creating those spaces um, wherever we're at. Yeah, absolutely. From the ground up, right? From the time that we are toddlers and go into the playground to play, we need to know that it's okay if you were assigned male at birth and you want to wear a pink tutu or, um, you know, whatever the thing is, if you have autism and so sensory um, input is difficult to process, Maybe we need to create a world that is safer for you so that you can mm-hmm. be in those same spaces and occupy them with us. Um, because I think we're better, we're better when we're all together. Having said that, I, I recognize that some people are just, <laughs> right? Like that's my, that's my ideal world where everybody's working toward um, their best selves and everybody's welcome. But having said that, there are some people who aren't welcome to share my space with me because they are not safe people for me or for my children to be with. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really important topic. And I, I think that would be a good thing to segue into a little bit of what does a safe space, what, what does a safe space mean for, for a person? Is, and this is a big question that always comes out. I see people post online saying, I am a safe person if you want to come out to me. But that's actually a problematic statement. Yeah. Why, how, what does safety mean to a person and what does it mean to you? That's such a good question. And I think I'm still learning about what that means and how to hold those kind of boundaries, right? Um, so I also, uh, pre-COVID, was a um, suicide prevention trainer um, we, they've moved to online, um, versions of the, of the, um, lesson. And I don't, I don't like the online thing. You don't make connections with people that way. And I can't see how people are responding. So I choose not to do it that way anyway. So when I'm doing these presentations, um, for suicide prevention, we talk a lot about, um, how you might think that for your children, you are completely safe and they will tell you anything and they um just that you have that that closeness right that you know you're safe so clearly they know you're safe too does that make sense mm-hmm. and that that actually isn't their reality probably that for your children mm-hmm. you might not be the person that they want to tell these big, scary things that they're feeling. 
um, for a lot of reasons. Maybe they want to protect you or maybe um, you've said some things in the past that they remember and that makes them nervous that you're not going to be that person. So I think mm. for me, I'm just learning how to, to feel my way around the world and try and be safe. I think just because of the way our bodies are made, sometimes what is safe for me may not be safe for you and vice versa, right? So because of the way my mm -hmm. body is made, I pay attention to different things and I'm aware of issues that might come up when I'm walking out to my car in the dark, for example. Things that my husband, it wouldn't even occur to him to pay attention to. Um, so having said that, that's just all a way of saying that if we're going to create a safe space for each other, we have to listen to each other about what safe means. So if I'm going into a space, let's use the virtual world for an example. If I'm going into a page on Facebook, I need to know that it's safe for a person who maybe is no longer um, completely comfortable in male dominated spaces. Um, so I don't want a man coming on there and telling me all the things that he knows or that he thinks he knows. Mm. Um, not only because it's irritating, right? But also because it makes me feel unheard and unsafe. That's not going to be a problem for some other people. Um, it might not even be a problem for uh, other women or other non-binary people, right? Like that all might not be a problem for them, but because of me and my background, that is a problem. Um, so I appreciate spaces that monitor that carefully. Likewise, I would love to say I am a completely safe person for absolutely everybody to be exactly who they are, right? <laughs> That's my dream world again. But I know that I totally mess up sometimes. I say things that mm. aren't right. I um, don't have all the language that maybe I should have, or I talk over people sometimes, right? Like, so I also can be problematic, which means I think that we just have to be trying our best. Um, we had an mm -hmm. experience on Mormons building bridges without calling anybody out a while ago. And um, it was the interaction was completely fine. There was nothing like nobody was mean. Nobody said or did anything. It was just compiling resources, which is lovely. We should ha absolutely have resources for people. But all of the resources that were compiled were from men. And almost all mm. of those resources were cisgender heterosexual men. And that's, that's problematic, mm -hmm. right? If we're, if we're, I remember you doing a post about that too, you know, and that, cause that's, it's really important. Right. Like whose voices are you listening to? Not that those are invalid voices, but they're not the only valid voices. And so are we exactly. including women? Are we including non-binary people? Are we including um, people who are gender fluid? Are we including like all of that? Um, because how can we create a safe space without knowing what other people mean by safety? Mm -hmm. That was something that you and I had talked about before that we had started the podcast um, was how my first episode was just me. But I, as I've been in this space and listened and tried to understand, 
I realize that I am in such a high level of privilege as a white, straight, cisgendered man that like that's all that's the predominant voice that's been in the culture and society for forever. And they, we don't need more of my voices, which my voice could still be valid in some cases. But really, it's hearing from women, hearing from those that are transgender, hearing from those that are black. Hearing their lived experiences is way more important in this work than hearing from me. And so that's why I'm so glad you're here to share all of this because um, I need to keep listening and I need to keep learning. I just adore listening to everything that you have to say because it always teaches me how to be a better person. So I think we all occupy some spaces that are privileged and some spaces that aren't, right? Um, so you talked about how you're cisgender, heterosexual, white man. You also have um, a family that maybe is a little harder to navigate or whatever, right? Um, mm. uh, my sister, one of my sisters, is really, really good about um, knowing about disability rights and that kind of stuff. And so when I have a question, I go to her about it because, you know, like things like, who do I follow on Twitter? How do I, how do I start hearing these voices that are already out there? Because the other thing that we can't do is go to somebody and say, Hey, will you be my, you know, insert whatever category here? Will you be that yeah. for me and teach me all the things? Mm. Um, a couple of years ago, a, a neighbor wanted to start a group um, of white women teaching each other how to be uh, anti-racist and <laughs> I showed up I showed up at the first meeting and I thought you know there's some validity there maybe we're gonna read a book written by um, a, a black author right and we're gonna right. talk about um, what do we learn from this book or whatever and um, all of the mm -hmm. or play <laughs> videos or something of hearing from other voices <laughs> right, in this because group. there are a million resources already out there right people have already done this work Mm -hmm. um, and all of the ideas that she had were written by white people. And I was like, oh, okay, mm. but that's, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really comfortable with that. Um, not to say that there aren't valid works out there. But if I want to understand how my 14-year-old or 15-year-old or 16-year-old feels, I'm going to go to them about it. I'm not going to go to, you know, the neighbor and say, Hey, will you tell me how my kid is feeling right now? Right? Like I'm going to go to that person. So if I want to find out how, um, white men feel, how white cisgender heterosexual men feel, there are a lot of resources out there for me to understand, um, their experiences going through life. In fact, I had a friend point out recently that you have to know how they respond to stimuli in the environment or to other things that are happening because our lives sometimes depend on understanding that, right? So mm -hmm. um, somebody accused me once of not listening to conservative voices. <laughs> I kind of laughed at him and I was like, honey, I grew up in this church. I know conservative voices inside and out, right? Like I can mm -hmm. tell you your thoughts better than you could because I've had to know what those thoughts are in order to create a safe space for myself. So that when I'm 
um, you know, sitting in church or when I'm in the grocery store, I know how to pay attention to people who might be problematic. So, um, mm. yeah, so going to the voices and also the voices that have already been speaking to us so that we don't require work from people who have already done the work. Free emotional labor is what, um, is what that is, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, uh, people coming to themselves and realizing there's a whole new world out there and feeling this need to learn and in, in, in total innocence going to whatever group of people they're trying to learn more about when they don't understand that those people are already oppressed or, and they're marginalized. They already deal with microaggressions. They're already dealing with, you know, all of the, all the crap that's ha happening out there in the world to them and to other people. And that's yeah. just an extra burden for them to, to do that. Now that's not to say that um, I, I don't have many friends that have taken time to help me understand. And that's really that one-on-one -on -one personal experience and really taking the time to genuinely listen that that is absolutely uh, powerful and personal, but that should not be an expectation um, and that's where the educating ourselves comes into play. And, and I'm so glad that you brought that up that, you know, we can do that effort, um, to educate and, ourselves and hold each other in safe spaces when we mess up. Right. Um, uh, working mm -hmm. outward. So if I, if I say something that harms my, um, non-binary child, I don't go to them and expect them to make me feel better. Right. They're the, they're the person who is hurt. Mm. Oh so yeah. I can feel bad that they called me out. Um, absolutely. Whatever emotion you have is valid, but I don't go to them and ask them to make me feel better. I go to them and say, I'm going to do better now. Thank you for telling me. Right. I appreciate you mm. um, caring enough about me to correct me when I'm wrong. Um, but that's, that's a hard place to be if we come from a society where the appearance of perfection is more important than moving toward that ideal. Um, so, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that, you know, that's wrapped up it, in being cisgender, heterosexual and white, just in us society as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. The, the the whiteness is rightness, as uh, Joanna Brooks says in her uh, in some of her books. The whiteness is rightness. It's uh, it's pretty rough, but it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> it really it really is, and sometimes it hurts really bad, right? <laughs> like I don't want people mm -hmm. to tell me I do stuff wrong. <laughs> Um, so Bryn, um, going back to the safe spaces discussion, um, and also going back to the, the white heterosexual men kind of dominating the voice and not needing as much of that. Um, you did something very vulnerable, uh, about a week ago, or maybe it's been two weeks now. Um, oh no, it's like four days ago. I'm sorry. It's four days ago. Uh, you published a, an article in the exponent um would you like to kind of talk a little bit about that and your journey sure. with that um it, 
time just kind of is weird in this COVID, in this COVID world, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> just to get it right out there, my stepfather sexually abused me from the time he married my mother when I was nine until I was 13 years old. When I was 13 years old, my mom, um, uh, had my littlest baby sister, um, Alicia, she's a joy and a delight in the world. Um, and while my mom was in the hospital with that birth, my stepfather tried to rape me. Um, I fought him off. I, um, ran, uh, it was dark outside. I don't remember what time. Um, but it was, it was pitch black. We were in, um, Kansas city, Missouri at the time. And, um, I hid in a ditch every time, uh, cars went by because I was afraid he would, um, find me and try to take me back, um, to the house. And I didn't know where I was going. I just knew that I needed to go. I needed to find somewhere that was safe. I originally thought I would head to a friend's house. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I thought, well, of course, he will check there. So I can't head to, the, to a place where I felt safe um, because it couldn't be a place he knew about. Um, as I entered a neighborhood uh, close by our neighborhood, I saw... Um, uh, a house and all the lights were on in the house. The porch light was on, the front door was open. And I, I went to that house. Um, the woman uh, made hot chocolate for me, uh, sat me on the couch, covered me up with a blanket, um, didn't ask a lot of questions. Um, I just said to her, uh, my stepfather tried to rape me. And she said, sit here. We'll take care of you. You're safe. She called the police. Um, the police showed up and I'm not sure if it's because the police were there or what. Um, but pretty soon after that, my stepfather also showed up at the house and the police, um, asked me questions with my stepfather standing there. Um, uh, they talked to my stepfather with me sitting there. Um, I had never really had a male uh, father figure in my life. Uh, so I wasn't really sure what, uh, what was supposed to be expected from a father, but I was pretty sure that that wasn't it. Um, and, and mm-hmm. through that, um, there's a, when at the time in that place, there was a lot of retelling of the story by me to adults, um, uh, men, lots of men. The judges were men. The police officers were men. Um, uh, the lawyers were mm-hmm. men. Uh, my social worker was a woman. And that was the only woman in that space for me at that time. The therapist that I went to was a man. And this is who I had to tell my story to over and over and over again. And an interesting thing happened. Um, when I started telling my story, that first night when I'm sitting on the stranger's couch and I'm terrified and I have um, nobody around me um, who can shield me. And the the police officer says, you need to give me details, you know, you, and and that makes sense because that's his job. Um, I said, my stepfather tried to rape me and he said, what did he do? And so I tried to explain. Yes. And your stepfather was Um, right there. 
Oh my gosh. I think oh. now I'm hoping now yes. things would be different, right? Um, this was 30 some years ago. Oh. Uh, I hope we know better now how to shield children. But then, but I, but then I think about all the other women that are in the exact same situation, young women, adult women in this exact same situation. And that, that kills me. And there's a, there's a minimizing that happens Um, with that too, um, from the men themselves, but also because it's scary and you have to use words that are embarrassing to say in public, right? You have to say things like penis Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, maybe words that you don't even know if you weren't raised knowing them. Um, so mm-hmm. and things you wouldn't even you would normally like you said it's embarrassing but you would never even say even in your own home because it just right. wasn't something you would right. ever say and especially not back then <laughs> I mean you know I've raised my kids to know to know how to talk about these things and sometimes I think maybe they're a little too open talking about their bodies right <laughs> maybe that's um, a private thing but then also that's how they're safe um so when I said mm-hmm. to the man, to the police officer, here's what my stepfather did. He said, oh, he didn't try to rape you. He molested you. So that was the first time. I, because what he did was actually attempted rape. <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to get too graphic mm-hmm. because I don't know what experiences um, the people listening have heard. But there is no doubt that that was what that he told me that's what was going to happen. Um, and so that was the first, the first time a man told me that my story wasn't my own story. That, that what I wanted to say mm-hmm. wasn't something I could say. And that how it felt wasn't what was important. What was important was the legal word that the police officer gave to my experience. Um, and so it's been a lifetime since then of trying to overcome that, of trying to own my own story. Um, and some wonderful, beautiful people have helped me along, um, in my journey. Um, I, I can't possibly list everybody, right? Um, but one of the things that happened, uh, and it was, these things both happened in the same year, and it was very recently, it was only a few years ago, um, Dr. LaShawn Williams came to Colorado Faith Forums, and she was doing, um, she was one of the speakers at a full-day symposium of progressive Mormon thought. Mm. And she was talking about the history of the church, um, and she said, uh, if you don't tell your story, somebody else might tell your story and you might not like how they say it. I'm sure she said it much better than that, but that's, that was what I wrote down in my little notes. And she was talking about the history of the church. But what I heard was that it was time for me to own my own story. Um, and then that mm. same year, I went to Rocky Mountain Women's Retreat which is the definition of a safe space. It was my first experience ever going to um, a Mormon feminist retreat. I didn't even, I grew up thinking that those things were awful, right? Because they 
they will lead you away from the um from the true path and so i grew up very terrified of those kinds of things and it was actually the most connected i have ever felt with god was in that space where women mm. just shared and um our keynote there was ashley may um who wrote 100 birds taught me to fly and um she said in there write your story Whatever your story is, however small you think it is, however big it is, in your head, create a safe space. And from that safe space, write your story. And you have to write what feels authentic. And I thought, oh, I'll write about being a mom, right? Like, that's easy. I could totally write about all the funny things that my kids do or, you know, all the, <laughs> all the ways they make me want to pull my hair out or whatever. And every time I sat down to write, this experience with my stepfather kept coming up. And I kept saying, no, I'm not, <laughs> mm. I'm not, I'm not touching that trauma, right? That's, we're not going to go there. Um, and then I did EMDR with a therapist and I've done years of therapy, um, talk therapy. It's always talk therapy. So EMDR. Oh, what is, is EMDR? It sounds like it wouldn't work. And when I went in, I thought, this is not going to work. This is ridiculous. But it's a way of activating your left and your right brains, left side and your right side of your brain, um, so that things are brought to your consciousness that your mind is ready to work with. So the way it worked for me is that she gave me mm. little paddles that I held. And I put headphones on and the paddles and the headphones would um, each go left, right, left, right. And the paddles would have a little pulse. And in my ear, I would hear a little sound, right? So left side, then right side, left side, then right side. And the person who's guiding you through this um, licensed therapist, like all the schooling, all of that kind of stuff would just ask questions and you don't have to say more than okay or yes mm -hmm. or whatever, right? But the questions are things like, what are you thinking about? What is coming to your mind? So you don't have to talk about the things that you're experiencing in your head, as long as they know you're safe and you can say, okay, you're not too deep into it. And what that allowed me to do was process some of this trauma that I had learned from the time I was little to push down, that we don't talk about those kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. That it's taboo. And so through those three experiences, I learned that this is my story, but it isn't my shame. That the shame is his to carry. Mm -hmm. And so part of my healing for me has been to write my experience and to own it myself so that I can say, this is how you get to interact with me. This is what the truth is from, from where I stand and nobody gets to change that truth. Right? So the minimizing, um, mm -hmm. the redefining or the, um, false narrative, uh, my stepfather 
told everybody that I was the sexual aggressor that I would, that I would come on to him. Oh my gosh. And, um, it wasn't until I, until I wrote about it, that I was able to start looking at that experience, not from my adult me, but as an adult me looking at the child that that happened to. And it allowed me to say, Mm. oh my goodness, if a nine-year-old is experiencing something like that, it is never about the nine-year-old, right? It's not about the 13-year-old. It's not about the 28-year-old. It is not about the person who is experiencing that. It is not their shame to carry. It's part of their story now. But it's not their shame. And um, mm-hmm. and this therapy, it, it empowered you to, to write the story the way it was always meant to be, but no one ever gave you that right. authority to yeah. write it that way. And I think it, it also gave me the ability to say to people who maybe don't believe that story, that's on you, right? That also is not my thing to carry. Um, Now there are consequences, of course. So I wrote this um, piece in the exponent that actually it hadn't started out to be about that. It had started out to be about my experience trying to explain to my brother whom I love very deeply um, uh, about some choices that he made that have a direct impact on my children. And, you know, he's not a bad person. He is actually a very good person. Um, But as I was writing about the hurt I felt, I realized that that hurt was all stemming from the same experience that of being minimized, of being told that what I experience isn't valid because it doesn't fit the narrative that Mm. helps the men in power stay in power. Um, And that was empowering too, right? I was like, oh, I see what he's doing here. What he's doing is, we call it gaslighting now. We didn't call it that years ago, right? that's what it is. It's that manipulation. It's that you have to only say the things that keep white cisgender heterosexual men comfortable. Because if you say something that doesn't keep them comfortable, you're going to be attacked. And Mm -hmm. yes, you're the one that's confused. You're the one that's wrong. You know, that person would never do that. Why would you think that all of these um, explanations to try to uh, dismiss your reality um, that to make you feel like, or make you think that maybe you've, you were always wrong to begin with that, that, uh, that gaslighting is something that's so new to me still um, that when you told that story in the exponent, it was very, very clear. Thanks. I don't think it was clear to me until I actually sat down to write it. Um, I've been reading some uh, mm. indigenous feminism 
mainly because I don't understand feminism the way I want to. Um, and also because indigenous feminism looks different than white feminism. And it is, it's a beautiful thing. And one of the mm. things that um, struck me was the value of narrative in indigenous feminism that um, how it feels, how the experience feels is just as valid as whatever definitions or categories or, um, you know, uh, uh, writing tools you might want to use to get that experience out. Um, so one of the, one of the things that um, uh, Gloria Baird said in writing the circle is um, issues of silence or shame afflict us in the subterranean levels of our being. Possibly it is most damaging that we are not allowed to express our anger. And it hit me because I, mm. I never was allowed to be angry for what happened. I, I had to own what happened without mm. being able to move through all the emotions around that. The sorrow at having my little child's body um, objectified and abused and um, put into trauma in those ways. Yeah, you had to, gr you grew up way right. faster than you should have at right. that and moment. Things that I didn't even understand until I was married. I was like, oh my gosh, that's what that was. Right? <laughs> like, and then it colors, it colors your marriage too. Like this beautiful, mm -hmm. wonderful human being who I have connected myself to because I love him and because he is absolutely the most calm and patient and, you know, all the things that I'm not. Um, so this, this, <laughs> this lovely moment that we have, <laughs> and my thought is about my stepfather because I'm like, oh my gosh, right? <laughs> And then, oh, and then we have to, yeah. we have to take a break and I have to say, I have to tell you, <laughs> this, this is what I'm thinking about right now. And mm -hmm. that's not like the sexiest thing in the whole world. But also the beauty of having a connection with somebody who will say, okay, let's, Let's talk through this if you want to. And if you don't want to talk through it, let's just sit through it. Right? So when we talk about creating safe spaces, mm. sometimes those safe spaces are just that little bubble with that one other person where you can say, mm, I just had this thought and I need somebody who can make sure that I am safe while I'm going through this really big, scary thought. Yeah. I feel like everyone needs at least one person in their life that they could go to yeah. and just anything goes to, to be able to just get it out there because like, you know, as, as almost as silly as it, as it sounds like even a therapist sometimes may not be the safest person for whatever reason. I, I obviously I trust therapists 100% and recommend going to them, but it's still, everyone needs that one person they feel like they can at least go to, to be, open and honest. And I'm glad that in this moment, that was something you guys were able to share together as, as painful as that was, 
because that that's probably was probably really hard to do, you know. And well, I think because we don't give people, but anyway, tools. And I don't even know how you would give people tools for that, except to allow people to speak their truth, right? Um, you know, I he grew up in mm-hmm. Idaho, so um, his father was a cowboy, and you know, he he didn't have tools for um, speaking your truth. But somehow along the way, he learned to hear what's being said without minimizing or redefining or gaslighting or whatever it is that, that we call it. Mm. That's really great. I'm really glad you both have that relationship together. Um, So if we, go back a little bit to um, kind of where the, mm-hmm. the article led to with your brother. Um, later on, I think it, you mentioned in the, uh, the article, just the idea that he didn't really trust your reality, as you had said. Um, and your last paragraph was really powerful to me. Um, and I think it kind of leads into your current allyship and uh the work that you do in social justice work. Um, I don't know if you have the article in front of you. Would you, would you be willing to read that last section and and maybe share a little bit about it? So it's an open letter to my baby brother. I will stand between my child and you between all the wounded children and you, because that's what family does. Family protects and mamas, even when we're broken, stand between bullies and children. And if, when your own baby girl grows up to be other than you think she is or want her to be, and you call her broken and hateful and closed-minded, I will stand between you and her until she finds peace with those of us who believe her. Um, Mm. So like I said, I love my baby brother very much. And he, if you had a need, he would... Find a way to help you. He also mm-hmm. um, prospers because of white heteropatriarchy. Um, he's not willing to hear things mm-hmm. that tell him he's wrong. And part of what I've learned um through my beautiful child coming out is that sometimes the things we learn when we're young are wrong. (laughs) And um, I've had to own some of that Um, and, and still continuing to own it. Right. Like the, the things that I thought when I started parenting, I realize now are not things that served to create healthy children. And so I have to own that. Mm -hmm. And I would like to share that with other people. I would like to um, protect them from making some of those same missteps that I made um, from causing trauma to the people that we love the most. Uh, My brother, I have tried, um, said, you know, here, Will you listen to this podcast? Will you um, read this book? Will you, uh, you know, here's a short article. Will you read this? And nothing. 
but I knew that he would read the things that I write because in the past I've written some things and he's read them. And um, it was a really scary thing to put this out there because I wasn't sure what his reaction would be. But it mattered to me because I love him. And I think when we love people, we have to speak truth to them. We have to hold them accountable. Um, mm -hmm. And it didn't go so well. <laughs> it was not this beautiful kumbaya moment. <laughs> um, but maybe someday it will be. And maybe it never will be. But I put it out there and I feel better for it. And so, you know, who knows, maybe in 40 years, <laughs> maybe I will look back and I'll read this and I'll be like, that was so wrong. Why did you write that? Maybe I will have progressed more and I will have learned more. Um, but for now, this is my truth. And I felt good, even though the outcome was not what I would have had in my ideal world. If I had designed the outcome, it wouldn't have been what happened. So that's the article <laughs> i'm i'm so glad that you were able to write it though and you know when i when i you read that last paragraph i don't i hear your voice and i hear your experience but you know as as you know being in this space in lgbtq allyship and and black allyship and and, and trying to just lift the voices of those that are that are being oppressed your your words mirror so much of what other people have experienced and it's not just necessarily that you're going to stand up for your children it's all of the parents all of the family members all the people that are standing up to protect those that are being harmed and I, I know without any doubt that those that have read your story, that you have really touched on something that effect, has affected them in one way or another. And I think that's why it really made waves. Um, I have a few friends that I know yeah. for a fact that this really impacted. And so I, I'm really, really glad you were able to share it. Um, and, and I also realized that, you know, from your brother's perspective, that this probably was really hard to read that this it, it is really hard to separate those those feelings and emotions of this is this is really it may feel like an attack but one of the most beautiful things and i don't know if he'll listen to this podcast but and and i'm just speaking for myself but one of the most beautiful things that can happen from this experience is to be willing to listen and to be willing to acknowledge your reality brin and validate your feelings and try to see what he could do to be better. And, and maybe you might have different feelings on that, but I know from my personal experience, that's what's made a big difference in my life. Um, when people have told me, I just need you to, to try to improve and do better than you did before. And um, I really appreciate it when people told me to do that. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to that or, no, or if you want to correct anything I just beautiful. said. Or... Um, I, I love that. And I appreciate your thoughts on that. I, it, so it, I agree. It hurts to hear that you've been wrong or made a misstep or whatever. Right. Um, but I agree with you that 
-hmm. It means that we now know how to do something in a way that is better than the way we had been doing it or more helpful. I think that's probably the term I should use is when somebody says to me, you really messed up here. If I can say, oh, now I can do things in ways that are helpful to people that I didn't know before, because we only know what we know, right? Like I can't, there's so much out there that I don't know yet, but it's exciting to learn about that stuff. It's so exciting to learn how to take care of people in ways that I didn't know how to do before. Um, I like myself better that way. Mm -hmm. So. There's a, uh, there's a quote by Rain Dove that you've probably seen me share a few times. Um, Rain Dove is a non-binary activist uh, and, and model. They said that it's easier to love ourselves when we feel loved as ourselves, no matter where we are on our paths. And when people can see us for who we really are, the, the good, the, the traumatized, the the abused every aspect of ourselves and validate that that's my reality. This is the whole me of who I am. It is easier for us to love ourselves and to feel loved. And, and I just, you were able to really share your story and your experience. Um, and I just hope that he takes that time, that chance to listen and other people too. There's plenty, there's plenty of men that need to read it. <laughs> and and learn a few things from it for sure. Absolutely. Um. So, is there anything else that you would like to share um, from that? Um, there's a few other things I wanted to ask you about, um, but is I want to make sure there's um, if no, there's any other I last think, thoughts you want to share on that section. I think we've covered it. Okay, great. Um, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing all of that. So some other things I wanted to like uh, kind of leading into all of this with your, you growing up, having this experience, um, your children being LGBTQ um, and also growing up and or being in, in the church and being involved. Like you, I don't know exactly when you joined Mormons building bridges, but I did want to ask in general, when did you really start getting into kind of an activist? mindset when did you start really reaching out to those on the margins and start listening at what point in your that's life did a, that that's kind a of change really interesting for question. you um so my whole life i have been an activist i um was the annoying kid uh in high school who went to um amnesty international meetings and PETA meetings and uh you know we did all of our PETA meetings and we did all of that um uh, letter writing to uh, free Nelson Mandela, um, that kind of distant activism, I guess. Um, so it's, it's part of, it's part of my makeup. In fact, on, uh, Mormon matters, uh, a couple of years ago, Dan Watherspoon had the two Janas on, um, Jana Reese and Jana Spangler. And they did, uh, what is your personality type? A couple of episodes on what is your Enneagram personality type. And it wasn't really, I don't go in for those things. I never did like the, you know, um, 
take this quiz and it will show you what kind of cake you would be or whatever. That wasn't my thing. Um, but I really enjoyed the <laughs> podcast and I really respect the people who were on it. So I thought, okay, well, I'll give this one a try. And what I found out is, is that I'm a reformer. I like to know what the problem is and I like to work to fix the problem. And that really resonated with me because that actually is who I am. Mm. Um, and I also, from that, figured out that's why sometimes it's really hard for me to sit in LDS spaces because that type of personality, <laughs> right? Um, especially when it's a woman, <laughs> right? All the problems right? have been solved already. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have so many problems if you didn't keep Sorry. talking about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. So, um, especially when you're a woman, that's not really, it's not really welcome in those spaces. Um, but finding mm -hmm. that out, I was like, oh, well, I can embrace this part of me because if I really believe that I was made in the image of divinity, which I do believe, then the way I am is divine. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that I can go ahead and point out mm. all the problems <laughs> as long as I'm working to fix them too, because I really hate it when people are like, well, here are all the problems and you have to fix it yourself. I prefer to say, I would like to be involved in mm -hmm. the solution too. So tell me what I can do. And I had kind of been dancing around the margins of LGBTQ activism and safe spaces, um, learning things trying to understand all the things I didn't know. I did a ton of reading, um, science, uh, that sort of thing. Trevor Project, um, uh, GLAD, uh, those kinds of, of spaces that do a lot of educating. I watched so many TED Talks. Um, they're all on YouTube, so you can watch, you know, probably a bajillion different people talking about their experiences. Um, and my oldest kiddo was very open and frank with me. Um, some things are hard to hear. <laughs> Did they come out to you so after or before you started really trying to understand? The emotions of loving and accepting had always been in my head, but it was in that way that Mormons often love and accept, right? <laughs> I love you and accept you, but you need to make different choices in your life. Mm. Um, and I didn't know that was problematic. Mm -hmm. I now know, like I totally understand and I see. And, and now that I see, I'm like, well, why didn't I figure that out before? Of course that would be problematic, but I didn't know. So anyway, you have to give yourself grace as well as becoming a better person for it, right? Um, they came out when they were 15, my oldest kiddo. And at first they thought they were bi because that was the only word they had for what they were. And um, all of this is with permission. I don't share any of their story that they mm -hmm. haven't already given me permission to share. So they came out at 15 and then we had the wrestle with, well, do they go to church? Do they not go to church? Um, maybe it's just a choice. If they're really bi, then can't they just choose to love a man instead? And then, right? <laughs> like we can still... <laughs> right. yeah but that's all just out of the let's, box let's try thinking and this you know it's for yep. this temple ideal that that i have 
that is my, it's my ideal, right? Um, because the church really did provide a lot of mm -hmm. safety for me as I was growing up. And it kept me from making a lot of choices that I otherwise probably would have made. Um, and I'm grateful for that. I, I am so grateful that I have that and the friendships that it gave me. That same thing didn't work for my oldest kiddo. My oldest kiddo was traumatized by church. Um, people were downright rotten to my kiddo. Um, mm. I'm saying that as very much a mama dragon. Um, but also, I mm -hmm. remember things and I heard things and I see the way people respond to me now. Um, and there were some lovely people, but the kids weren't lovely. <laughs> the, the kids were the opposite of lovely. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, and so as my child grew, they started to understand more about who they are. And they went away to college their first year and they came back and they said, huh, hey, here's a thing that is true about me. I am non-binary. And I said, awesome. That's fantastic. And then I went online and I was like, what is non-binary? Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> I'm 180 years old and I had no idea what it meant. Yep. Um, <laughs> and oh, as I read about it, I was like, huh, that is exactly who my kiddo has always been. And we didn't have a word for that. We didn't know that that was a way. Right. When I was in high school, we were taught there are mm. two genders, male and female, um, which wasn't even accurate then. But it certainly isn't accurate now that science mm -hmm. has come to understand a little bit more. It never was accurate because we always understood about um, people being intersex or um, people being transgender. So that was always wrong. But now we know it's way, 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 way wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and while they were away yep. at college, um, for a couple of years, my dear friend, um, Jody Hansen, who had been waiting patiently for me to be ready to hear, <laughs> um, gently took me by the hand and said, here, these are some groups that would probably help you. And it was Mama Dragons and it was Mormons Building Bridges. Um, and she, Jody was- How did you know Jody? I didn't know you knew Jody. Jody used to be in our ward. Um, he, in fact, he was our bishop. He was hands down the best bishop I have ever in my entire life knew, known. Um, in fact, if they were probably, if they were still in our ward, if they were still our bishop, uh, I would probably still be going to church because <laughs> they're, they're big tent Mormons, right? Everybody is welcome. <laughs> we will make this a safe space for you. Um, anyway, so finally, when I was ready to hear uh, Jody was right there, ready to guide me through the process. Mm. And she's the one who connected me with some of the progressive Mormon spaces that have allowed me to still feel that God is a part of my life when the only other option in the LDS church would be to mm. either silence your story and change your definition so that they fit the um the church's view on things or walk away completely right those are the only two choices 
unless you mm -hmm. enter into some of these progressive Mormon spaces. And I don't think Mormons building bridges is all that progressive. Right? I think it should be hard to say, yes, we will build a bridge so that everybody can feel safe in church. But apparently it is that hard given some of the conversations right. we have on there. <laughs> Yes. But you know, that's that's one of the most beautiful things that I've 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 really seen, Bryn, is and I know that this podcast isn't focused on Mormons per se or or religion entirely, but just in any community or group, some of the most um avid and most um passionate members of that organization are often the ones that are ostracized um, because of varying um, beliefs or or uh, their identity or whatever the, the the case is. And I've seen your love and I've seen your patience and I've seen how much you have really tried to help people connect with each other. And, and I myself am in kind of a, a similar situation where I love the church. It is my home and I want to stay connected. But at the same time, I feel like I'm not, I am not entirely welcome because of my love of my LGBTQ family, where I'm trying to build this bridge of understanding and I may see things differently than I used to. And um, I guess all that to say that I'm glad that we, that you and I both have these kind of spaces that we also feel safe because of our deep love for other people and our love for the church yeah. and how much we wish that those could all just be one in the same. Um, yeah. Thank you. But yeah, I just I thought I'd, I'd share that little, for little me, thought on that. I feel safest in spaces where I know people who aren't me feel safe. So if I think that my oldest kiddo would feel safe in that space, I feel safer mm. there than I do in other places. Um, there are some uh, places I've stopped engaging because it's not safe. It's, um, you know, maybe it's a community um, group where neighbors get together and they, you know, what's going on in the neighborhood or whatever. Um, and it really becomes a place of ugly bullying and judgment. And I think, huh, I probably this would be okay for me because I'm not any of the things that they seem to think are dangerous for the neighborhood. And yet I don't feel safe here because they are creating a world where people are not welcome. And I don't, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be part of a place where the way you look or the way your body was made is defined as less than or subpar, right? Like, that doesn't work for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And it, it's so interesting because, and I, and I know I've only recently crossed this bridge over the last year or so, but those on the other side of that bridge feel defensive or feel like they're being attacked, but they can't separate that it's their belief of putting down or, or minimizing someone else's reality that that is the piece that is harmful 
it's not them per se. We're not saying that we don't want them to be a part of our world. We're saying this belief of putting down someone else because of, like you just said, because of their, their sexual orientation or their gender identity or their race or their age or whatever it is. It's if, if there are these identifiers that are being used against people, that kind of philosophy is what we're trying to remove. And I wish that people could just see that it is not that we're attacking them as a person. It is this very toxic and we're hearing it. This has been a thing you and I have talked about a lot, but we're hearing it in the news. We're hearing it in political spaces. We're hearing it at church, but most of these spaces should be safe spaces and they're not. I, um, I've been thinking um, since listening to your podcast, I've been thinking about that, um, the metaphor of building bridges, right? And what does that, what does that mean? And somebody on one of our groups pointed out, well, the bridge is already there. They have to cross it back. We're not going to keep, we're not going to keep moving that bridge, right? (laughs) So that it, so that it gets less and less safe for the people who are continually Mm. traumatized by some of the things that happen in the public space. That's not what we're here to do. What we're here to do is provide a way for you to get back to a place where everybody is valued. And if that means you have to leave some of your biases and habits on the other side of the bridge, then that's what you've got to do. And I think what I, if I could, if I could get one thought through to the people I talk to is that, yeah, it hurts to leave those things, but you will be so much happier when you do, right? You will be so much happier. I have found mm. friends who, I'm getting emotional again. I have found friends who are beautiful and caring and understand how hard it is and who catch me when I fall because I do. And they also hold me accountable for my behavior, right? Like they can say, I love you. And also this thing isn't okay. Um, So I Mm. talked about my sister and she's really good about um, understanding ableism, which is something I'm just, I'm just now trying to understand. I'm just seeing that it's a thing, right? And she'll call me out. She'll say, "Um, you can't Mm -hmm. use that word, but it's, I feel so much happier when mm-hmm. I'm in a space where I can say, oh, I was hurting people and now I'm not, right? It feels better. Exactly. Or you're trying your best not to. It, that, it, that's kind of going along the lines of anti-racism. It's, it, it's not enough to just say, I'm not racist. It's, no, I'm going to do what I can to be anti-racist. I'm Absolutely. going to keep improving. I am not above correction. Um, and I love that you ha- that you have that passion, that wanting to create that safe space. I'm glad you're here with the with the rest of the group for the journey, right? Because <laughs> it takes a village to raise an adult. Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I I have another friend that that does the same thing for me for, and and ableism is also something that's new to me as well. And I've been really grateful to him um, that he's taken that time to say, you you know, Jonathan, the thing you said, it it actually hurt or this thing wasn't okay. 
And before it would be a, I would be hurt by it or I would be, I was shut down. And now I just know it it's, right. has nothing to do necessarily with me. It's just to say, this is something that can be improved. Um, yeah. And that That's has a made friend. a huge difference. I guess we, we've talked about a lot of different things. I think the last thing I wanted to ask Bryn, um, in the world that we're living in today, um, you know, I'm glad we were able to talk about, you know, bridge building, but the second part of this podcast is breaking barriers. And of all the things that you've kind of experienced as of late and things in the world, what are some barriers that you would like to see broken that, that whoever's listening to this podcast right now, that they can start breaking these barriers and like in their families, in their communities and politics, like where, where do you see so I have the most valuable barriers being broken? And they, they're related. The first one is that we have to break those barriers inside of ourselves. What are the things that we're holding on to that are preventing us from being more helpful people? Um, so for instance, you know, I was holding on to this idea of what our family should look like. And that was harming my oldest kiddo. It wasn't until I broke that barrier inside of myself that I was able to really come to enjoy my kiddo for the person that they are, who, who isn't the person I thought they were when they were born. Right. And the next barrier I want to see broken Mm. that relates to that, because I think it's dependent on biases that we hold is that any space where decisions are being made should be a space inclusive of every single way of a body being. So um, whether that body is abled or disabled or um, living in poverty or living in wealth or black, Latinx, indigenous, um, Asian, whatever is about that body, decisions should not be made unless that person is also included. So I'm thinking right now of the government, right? <laughs> um, and if you look at the government makeup in the U S it looks a mm. lot the same until you get to the house of representatives where we're starting to see some differences there, mm. but we still don't have transgender members. We still don't have um, good representation from uh, indigenous communities. We still don't have good represent representation from, um, you know, gay or lesbian or bisexual and forget non-binary. They're, they're almost invisible in our public spaces, right? We're getting better about it. Um, you mentioned rain dove. Yeah, this was a, a decent election from what it's been in the past, but you're right. It's still majority of, the, we, of it is we make not decisions as diverse as it should be about people who live different experiences. Um, so men in politics make decisions about what I can do with my body. Um, they make decisions about whether my oldest child can have health care mm -hmm or can have um, housing or go to school or whether they can even get a job, right? If 
it's only one kind of person making those decisions, then those decisions are not going to be the best decisions that they could be. So that's the barrier. And I would say, you know, it goes through all places where power is held. So government, um, church organizations, civic organizations, community, um, their Facebook, right? Like all of these things that hold power in our lives should be inclusive Mm -hmm. of all kinds of people. That's my testimony. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you, Brian. And thank you so much for being on, on the podcast and, and kind of, um, you know, kicking it off with having wonderful guests that I, I, I look up to you so much and I really appreciate everything you've shared. I, I look forward to our friendship for many years to come. And I look forward to seeing this world become more beautiful because of the things you're doing in it. And, um, I, I guess, uh, is there any last thoughts that you'd um, like to share? No, I think that was a good, a good place to end. It takes a ton of work and it's scary because you're vulnerable every single week. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, Bryn. And, and thank you all of uh, everyone that's listening. And I hope that you've, you know, you've learned something. I know I've learned a lot already just listening to Bryn and, and, what the one thing I really want to take away from this pod, all these podcasts, is try to apply these things in your life, with your family, with your community, um, building bridges of understanding, but then breaking the barriers that that Bryn had mentioned. We can do that through voting. We can do that through engaging in um, in our local communities, in our in our faiths, and so forth. Um, I just hope that we can all walk away you know, making a difference in this world. And uh, thank you again, Brennan. I'll, uh, we'll uh, have <laughs> to have you good. back on Thanks, here again Jonathan. sometime in the future. <laughs>